I'm Seattle Times political reporter Jim Bruner. And I'm Seattle Times City Hall reporter Dan Beekman. Let's talk politics. Welcome to episode 45 of The Overcast, the Seattle Times weekly politics podcast. This week I'm flying solo and I sat down with Roberto Dondish. He's the Mexican consul in Seattle. I talked to him about what the heck a consul does, about the population of Mexicans and Mexican-Americans in Washington State and Seattle area that he serves, and how his work has changed under the administration of President Donald Trump. We also talked about some of the surprising trade ties between Mexico and the Seattle area. I'm here with Roberto Dondich, Consul of Mexico in Seattle. Uh, Before taking the job last year, he represented Mexico as a negotiator for the United Nations Paris Climate Agreement. He has a PhD in international relations and a master's in international studies from Johns Hopkins University and a master's in foreign service from Georgetown University. Thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure. Happy to be here. So let's start with the basics. What is the job of the Mexican consul in Seattle? Right. So the, the job of any consul, the consulate is actually a representation of the Mexican state in another uh, area. But what differentiates an, an embassy from a consulate is that the consulate also gives services to uh, the community the, of the people that come from your country that live here. And um, we're not responsible for the federal-to-federal relation, but we are the representatives of Mexico towards the local governments, and more importantly, of course, to serving the the Mexican heritage population that lives in Washington State, and in our case, also Alaska and seven counties of Idaho. Oh, okay. So uh, not every city, not every state even has a Mexican consulate, let alone an embassy. No, embassy is only one, so that will be in Washington, D.C. So Jerónimo Gutiérrez is our, he's our ambassador in Washington, D.C., and he represents Mexico to the U.S. federal government, of course. And then we have Mexico is the country with the most consulates in the U.S. by far. So we have 50, U- 50 consulate offices in the U.S., which is something that no other country even comes close to. But in any case, we don't have one per state, it really depends on where our, uh, our heritage population is or our trade interests are. Or like, does California have multiple yeah, consulates? So, so California has ten, 10 consulate offices just because of the amount of people that are there. And, it's, of course, it's a border state to us. So there's a specific uh, action requirement that we need to have. And we have pretty big uh, consular offices there. So we have one. Then if we go up the, the Pacific coast, we have one in Portland. And we have the Seattle one. Got it. And and uh, just curious because I've never been there. Where is uh, where is the physical consulate in Seattle? Is it downtown? It's actually very close to where we're right now, which is in Belltown. So it's the consulate's in Third and Blanchard. Okay. In Belltown. All right. And uh, now, what's your background exactly? I mentioned uh, that you've been a negotiator in the climate talks. Um, how did you become the Mexican? consul in Seattle. Uh, how did you get here? Well, I, I've been working in the foreign ministry of Mexico for more than 11 years now. Um, I, After graduating from my undergrad, I did in, international relations in Mexico City. I joined the foreign ministry as back then as head of the department for political, uh, political affairs 
and conventional disarmament at the UN Bureau. And I worked there for some time, then I went out and did my, my master's and my PhD over in Washington, D.C. And I came back because Mexico was coming in to, uh, he, it was going to be elected as a member of the UN Security Council. And they needed somebody to organize a team that was going to uh, give uh, work within the, the, the logic of the UN Security Council. So I went back to Mexico City to cover that role for some time. After that, I was the head negotiator of Mexico for the Arms Trade Treaty. Does it, your background in, in, in that kind of trade uh, uh, regulation have any bearing on the reason why you were posted to Seattle? Well, or no? after the Arms Trade Treaty, well, you know, I've been a multilateral negotiator for some time now. So after the Arms Trade Treaty, I was appointed a director general for global issues. And as director general for global issues, I was also head negotiator for the UN development agenda, the 2030 development agenda, and the UN climate change agreement in Paris. Now, how does that take me here? Well, after finishing Paris, um, I was approached in the ministry because they wanted to, they needed somebody to come to Seattle that had, they wanted to, to, to take this consulate to a new level in terms of not only the attention to our community, which is the most important part of what we do, but also in terms of promoting relations when it comes, for instance, on issues regarding the environment or uh, trade uh, relations as well. And my background in that area, but of course, as well as my training as in, an internationalist, is what led me to uh, led them to propose me to come here. And I was more than happy to accept them. And to be here, I've been here for a year now. Okay, great. And I, I do want to get a little bit later to uh, some of those issues around trade, around climate, uh, as relates to Mexico and our area. But first, let's talk about the, the, the population you serve in the Seattle area and in Washington state. Tell me about that. What kinds of things do you do for folks and who are the folks that you serve? Right. So first, we have to, to see just in Washington state, without going into Alaska and Idaho, the Mexican heritage population, that means Every th everyone who identifies themselves as being Mexican might be that they have dual citizenship or they're here with workers visa, we're here working in the fields, wherever. We, uh, the, the latest uh, census figures show that it's around 790,000 people. That's 11% of the state's population. So they're uh, throughout the state, m uh, many of them in the eastern part of the, of the state, but they're uh, all about. And so that's that's people who may have dual citizenship, uh, or they may be Mexican, just Mexican citizens working here, or they may be Mexican American and here for generations. Includes all those people. Yes, as long as they identify themselves as part of the Mexican uh, origin group. Okay, so that's a big number. It is a big number. It's it's actually the biggest minority in the in the state. And what we do is we do everything from providing them passports, for instance or consular identification cards if they need them, to all kind of services that they need in terms of their lives in, in Mexico and to help them with their lives here. For instance, one of the things that we do is we provide free health clinics uh, twice a, a week for members of the community. We provide a free dental clinics once a month. We go around the state with a, what we call the consulate on wheels. 
So we get closer to where our, uh, the population is and we provide passport services. We provide, uh, again, uh, you can get birth certificate copies. Um, so all of those things that might seem very simple are actually very important for people to be able to develop as per as people as as a person in in the society you know it's interesting uh on the day of president donald trump's inauguration uh i covered an event that this uh, city of seattle held at seattle center it was a uh event for immigrants and refugees and one of the things that was done there was helping people become naturalized u.s citizens also just help in general with immigration documents. And I think that uh, your office had a table there. I talked to some folks who were who were using the service. And I think uh, one gentleman I talked to was trying to get his birth certificate. He needed that for whatever reason. He didn't have it, you know, uh, it was back somewhere in Mexico in, in a drawer somewhere or, you know, in a computer system and he needed that. Uh, and so he was asking for that help. Absolutely. And that's part of what, of what we do. And it's... Uh very few consular networks in the world can actually do that. So we we do that. We provide passports. You know, people come to our office uh, with all of the, the documentation in order, and uh, an hour and a half they'll have their passport in hand. Now, my colleague Nina Shapiro uh, wrote a great story back in November. She interviewed you and wrote about some of the outreach that you were doing, and it was it was good. We published that story at the time in English and in Spanish, which was I think was helpful. But she was talking to you about the anxiety in uh, the Mexican immigrant community in our area after Donald Trump was elected. And uh, one thing you told her at the time was you were telling the folks that you serve, be calm, but be prepared. Why were you telling them that? What did that mean in, in that context? Well, I, absolutely. And I think I, I, I keep on saying that, that same thing. Um, you know, Unfortunately, what happened during the, the campaigns was that the rhetoric that had been used uh, has created a lot of anxiety in, in a lot of people. And um, one of the interesting things is it doesn't matter what their legal status is, they, the anxiety is real and it's present throughout the, uh, the, 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 the community. And a little bit because we didn't know exactly what new policies were going to be in place, what not. Uh, and, and it's important for people, I think, very important for people to be able to have a situation in which they can have a communication with, uh, with the police um, department where they live, with the health services where they live, and kids going to school and having a, 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 a good sense of being safe where they are. And that was not happening. People didn't know exactly what the new rhetoric, which was quite, quite um, disturbing. But again, we didn't know how that was going to translate into government policy, and we still don't know in many cases. So one of the things that we were saying is, okay, be calm, because you have to keep on living, you have to have a continue your day-to-day life, but also be prepared. What do we mean by be prepared? Get your documents in order. Get your U.S. documents in order. Get your Mexican documents in order. Be prepared with a family plan if you need it. Um, in the case of what, uh, someone being arrested or deported or or something else, that can be one of the cases. For instance, the other thing that we also have is some parents here who might be deported, but their kids are American. What happens then? So we that's something that that really uh, you know it's it's something that we care a lot about because we want to make sure that the kids are okay. 
and what happens to them will they go back to mexico will they stay here so the parents have to make decisions and have to fill out the right forms in that sense and and again we're working you know our job here is to to uh, talk to the mexican community and tell them how we th- see things each of them can take make their own decision now it's true that more mexicans are coming back to mexico every year than coming to the us and we see it every day so now we have a lot of families for instance which the kids might be uh, us citizens but the parents decide that the whole family will go back to mexico and we're working with them as well in, in t- how they can come back and, and establish themselves so when you spoke with Nina and you were telling folks to be calm but be prepared, that was in November after the election. There were a lot of unknowns at that time. Now it's many months later. Uh, there are still some unknowns, but the Trump administration has been in effect for many months. What has changed about your job? I think we start understanding a little bit better in terms of immigration what's, uh, what's taking place. Uh, that doesn't mean that we understand quite well what's going to happen in uh, six or eight months because part of what we've seen is that the federal government is still uh, structuring its its action plans. But what we've seen is we haven't seen any, any rates, any big uh, action, but we have seen changes in patterns. So instead of um, immigration agents detaining people that they were looking for, we do see them going f- to detain somebody and then whoever else is in that house or in that group who might not have the, the right documentation, they're also detained. Um, we're also, we've also seen some cases uh, with DACA, uh, with the Dreamers, in which that what they, the way they thought that the, um, or the promise that they were given in terms of the no action was going to be taken on them in terms of deportation. We've seen that it's in the majority of the cases that still remains, but in some cases, uh, immigration agents have decided otherwise. And I'm not an expert in this, but have you seen any uh, more emphasis on um, federal immigration agents detaining and maybe deporting people that are not only people who have been convicted of crimes, but people who haven't? Well, the problem is that the, the definition of crimes has changed. So now simply being in the U.S. without papers, that's already considered a crime in terms of the immigration section, not for the courts. So uh, it, it's difficult to understand what you mean when you said we're going to get somebody because there is a criminal offense. That's what's not clear yet. That's what we're trying to still measure and find out. And so are the conversations that you're having with folks in the community, are those hard conversations for you to have because you know some, but you don't know everything? Absolutely. And that, and we're very clear about, the, about this with them. You know, but at the end of the day, what we have to understand is that if we look at the numbers, by far, the immigration groups, especially Mexican, which I'm going to talk about, but other immigrant groups as well, have much lower criminal rates than the general population. And the reality and the reason behind it, it's it's simple. It's not that they're better or worse than anybody. It's because you don't want to get in trouble. So the reality is that, that the criminality rate among Mexican immigrants in the U.S. is way lower than the general population's criminal rate. 
And I don't know if this uh, factors into your job at all, but in terms of local politics rather than federal politics, you know, one of the most high profile uh, uh, stories involving um, people of Mexican descent in in Washington state was in Yakima a few years ago. The American Civil Liberties Union sued the city of Yakima in 2012, I believe, uh, over their city uh, council election system, which was partly at large and partly by district, and said, look, this city has a really large uh, Latino population, um, but there are no Latino city council members. We think that you need to go to an all-district system. A judge ruled in their favor in 2015, and that same year, two Latina city council members were elected. Do you talk at all to people in the community about involvement in local politics? We don't get involved in local politics. Our job, we are representing a foreign government here, so we don't get involved in local politics except for trying to understand what's happening and making sure that uh, local gov- uh, government officials respect the rights of the Mexican population here, of course. But we, of course, follow that, and we're very happy that that actually happened because it's very important that the Latino community here has a voice and actually is recognized as where it has to be. So, you know, Yakima is 51% Hispanic. Pasco is 71% Hispanic, right? So it's interesting to see that before there was no... Hispanic representation in elected officials. And I think that's a, we're very happy that that has changed. Now, we don't intervene in any way, but we do follow it and, and talk to, to, of course, the representatives of the leaders of the Mexican and Hispanic communities. Now, I cover Seattle City Hall and have written stories when Mayor Ed Murray, our current mayor, has gone on international trade missions, and he's gone to some of the country's that uh, I think people in Seattle commonly think of when we think about international trade with our area. He's been to China. He's been to Japan. uh, Also some that you might not think of right away. He's been to Ireland, where his family has some roots. And uh, I believe Boeing has sold a bunch of planes to an Irish airline. And also he's been to Israel. I don't believe he's been to Mexico, but the governor, Jay Inslee, was recently there. Does Washington State and does the Seattle area have an important trade relationship with Mexico? Absolutely. And by the way, Mayor Murray was in Mexico okay, in, in December. Corrected. I, I went with him. He, we had an amazing trip to Mexico. It was the uh, meeting of city leaders, worldwide city leaders on climate change. Uh, right. Now I remember. Yes. Right. And But we took advantage of him being there and, and he met with a, a, quite a few officials and let me tell you that, you know, Mayor Murray has been great with us and with the Mexican community in trying to help out. So we truly appreciate it. And the governor was just there. And we're very happy because it was the first time in 10 years that a sitting gov- governor of Washington has traveled to Mexico. But it was not only him. It was a whole delegation of 40 people, 35 companies went to Guadalajara and to Mexico City. And, you know, they saw many things that I try to explain here many times, and it's difficult sometimes to, to, to explain what the modern Mexico is. You know, there are a lot of links in Washington state to Mexico, and a lot of people here have traveled to Mexico, mainly to the beaches. And that's great. Keep on doing it. We love to have you there. But it's also important to, to see what's happening in the uh, private sector, in the, in the business sector, and how, for instance, Guadalajara 
uh, when one thinks about Guadalajara and sees that, for instance, Intel has a, has a, a operations there, and most people in the delegation, for instance, that we took the, there, thought that Intel had a factory, right? Because you think about the oh, maquiladora or this kind of... Well, no, actually, Intel has 1,200 engineers working on research and development. Oracle has 1,400 engineers working on research and development. Mexico is a country that's producing more engineers per capita in the world every year. So this is part of what we wanted them to see. Now, in terms of trade, uh, Washington State exports to Mexi Mexico around $2 billion a year. Mexico exports to Washington State around $1.3 billion a year. So where does Mexico rank, uh, you know, compared to like China, Japan, let's say? So I think we are the sixth uh, largest partner, which we're still way off because for 30 of the U.S. states, Mexico is either the first or second trading partner. So Washington state, even though by number we're doing better than other states, still I think we're just scratching the surface of where we can get. So we import, we're the first or second, depending on the year, importer of Washington state apples. We're the biggest importer, international importer of condensed milk from Washington state. We buy, you know, Mexico is the largest producer of beer. Washington State is the largest producer of hops. It just makes sense. No? <laughs> nice, nice trade relation there. <laughs> so um, we import a lot of planes as well. And we sell to Washington State plane parts. And we, we also have a lot of investments. And Mexican companies have a lot of investments in Washington State. So around 107,000 jobs in Washington State are actually dependent on trade with Mexico. So I suppose one of your jobs, like you're doing here, is to talk up Mexico's economy and try to try to strengthen those ties with our local economy. How do you try to do that? Uh, is it is it talking to Jay Inslee? Is it talking to Ed Murray? Is it talking to business leaders? What do you do to try to create more? Well, to all, of course. Um, but I, I guess at the end of the day, it's about business to business. I mean, Mexico is a very open uh, economy, and because of NAFTA, it allows it to be open to, to, to the U.S. So I think it's more about that relation. So let's talk about Seattle-based companies or Seattle-area-based companies, right? Costco. Costco has 37 stores in Mexico. Starbucks has more than 600 stores in Mexico. Amazon has prime services and, and fulfillment centers in Mexico. Um, Microsoft has had present in, presence in Mexico for a long time, and they're just growing and growing. It's one of the biggest providers to the Mexican government, for instance. Um, Packard. Packard is the biggest uh, seller of trucks in Mexico. And they also produce trucks there. You know, So these are the kind of things that we, we, we have to start seeing. And then we also have Mexican companies here. So we have Gruma who, that produce the tortillas. They have a, uh, a, a factory in, in Fife. We have a, a SAS Marine, which owns part of the of the um, um, Seattle port. The port, yeah. They're part Mexican company. So, you know, we have more and more Mexican companies also coming here and creating jobs here. So Donald Trump has talked a lot, well, he talked a lot on the campaign trail and, and as president about jobs going uh, going away uh, to Mexico, to China, other places. Has him coming uh, into office 
had an, much of an effect on the kind of trade you're talking about between between our area and Mexico? Well, trade in the past uh, six months has actually increased among uh, between Mexico and the U.S. Uh, investments, you know, at the, be- at the beginning were talks about how investments will, um, if investments would go through in Mexico or not, but actually they have gone through. You know, the, the, the reality is that if we look at what NAFTA has created, it hasn't actually just created a free market in North America. It has created joint manufacturing processes among in North America. So those processes are already there. The companies are producing in Canada, U.S., and Mexico at the same time. But also something has happened that it's very important and few people are, uh, still understand is that the Mexican internal market has increased considerably. The Mexican internal market is now a very important market for U.S. products. So, for instance, we are one of the biggest import of agricultural goods from the U.S., and that's part of what we have to understand that what NAFTA has created that possibility. So it's, uh, in our view, it's absolutely a win-win. There's some sectors in Mexico that haven't done as well as they could have because of NAFTA, but there are other sectors that have done very well. So it's it's a you know it's a deal of opening for a greater market. Now Trump isn't the only person in American politics who has said things critical of of NAFTA and of of uh, the way trade has gone uh, in, in recent decades. American labor unions have had critical things to say. Does any of your day-to-day work include dealing with the labor community? Absolutely. We work closely with them. Um, and it's not all the labor community that has that vision because many actually, you know, the reality that that we face is that there is a changing economy and there's also more automatization issues that have creating more stress on the labor community. But that's not because of NAFTA. The other thing that we have to understand is that Mexico at some point might have been a place where people would go to invest because of low wages, but that's not the case anymore. There are other reasons you, you go to invest in Mexico. Why? Because if it were only for uh, low wages, there are other places in the world you should be investing in and not Mexico, which doesn't have that low um, wages anymore compared to other countries like India or some parts of China. So I think that's something that Mexico has understood very well. But we also provide some some situations that favor investment. And we are in that sense. Now, we also do a lot of Mexican companies are investing heavily in, in the U.S., are creating a lot of jobs in the U.S., and that's because of NAFTA. If a company decides to shut down a production a sphere or center, it's very clear who the people who are hurt are, and you see it right there. Now, the advantages of free trade are actually diversified, and they're, they're stressed out throughout the community. So it's more difficult to see that. But for instance, in order for US production to be competitive around the world, many times you need lower um, to have lower costs of production. And if you can buy pieces that you need for that production, for instance, for Boeing aircraft, for places that can give you high quality and lower costs like Mexico, then what you're doing is actually you're promoting to more jobs here in terms of creating the 
big plane, but you're also creating more jobs in Mexico. And that's what we're trying to do. But millions of jobs in the U.S. depend directly on trade with Mexico. I should ask you, because you're an expert on climate change and climate change negotiations, you've done that in the past. The mayor and the governor, when they were recently down in Mexico, that's one of the things that they were talking about, right? Uh, that uh, uh, Trump has pulled uh, the United States out of the Paris Agreement, but le uh, local leaders like Jay Inslee, like Ed Murray, um, have have made commitments to try to uphold uh, those values and those principles on a local level. Uh, how do you come in and talking with them, and, and what's the relationship with Mexico? Absolutely. Well, climate change is a top issue for Mexico. Mexico is one of the countries that has been more affected by climate change. A few years back, for the first time in our history, we had two hurricanes here hitting Mexico from each of the coasts at the same time. So things that we didn't see before. So uh, I was a head negotiator for Mexico for the climate change agreement, and we, we were very, um, we're really pushing for the strongest agreement that we could get. And, you know, we, we, don't, we think it's unfortunate, the decision of uh, the, federal, the U.S. federal government to step away from, from Paris. We, we have said so publicly, our foreign ministry has said so publicly. I, we think there's much more to gain for the U.S. to be part of it than be outside. And we hope that the U.S. actually keeps on taking actions because it's very important. Are you able to just say okay, we're just going to work with Washington State or we're just going to work with Seattle instead. Is that something you can do? Well, we can work with, uh, with many instances. Uh, now, Washington State cannot be part of the Paris Agreement because you have to be a country to do that, but they can unilaterally decide to implement the regulations and the stipulations that are in the, in the agreement. Now, let's be very clear. The beauty of the Paris Agreement, and a lot of people criticize it for it, and I truly understand it, but it was the only way that we were going to get an agreement, is that each country decides how far it can go every five years in terms of mitigation of uh, the emission of, of gases. So, you know, here, what some states, especially Washington State, California, have done is that they've said how much they're going to do, and we welcome that. And we're going to be working with everybody that wants to work with climate change. We just signed uh, a letter of intent uh, with Governor Inslee and our Vice Minister of the Environment in Mexico to work together. And we're trying to think out how we can plan a logic of a Pacific Climate Action Corridor that might go from British Columbia, Washington State, Oregon, California, and Mexico. How to work together on that. So we're going to be working on this for, for the next Yeah, that's months. something that uh, I've heard local leaders talking about is, is a West Coast climate change bulwark. And we work very closely already with California. We, our market, carbon markets are already interlinked. We work very closely. So we want to bring that work also to Washington State and, and get, that, get it done in that sense. All right. So do you know how long you're going to be posted in Seattle? Uh, is it a set amount of years? It's or not what? clearly said. Normally it's a three-year thing, but we there's no clear set deadline. Okay. So you think you have at least two more years? <laughs> Probably, yes. Okay. Thanks for joining us and for talking with me. Thank you very much. Thank you for your, for your work. And most importantly, I ask the listeners, you know, if you see members of the Mexican community, talk to them, get to know them. They're part of your community. Okay. Thanks.
That's a wrap for episode 45 of the Overcast. Thanks a lot to our guest, Roberto Dondich, and thanks to 88.5 KNKX for hosting us to record in their studio again. Thanks to you all for listening as well. You can reach me on Twitter at dbeekman. You can email us at cltimesovercast at gmail.com. Call and leave us a voicemail at 206-464-8778. And please listen and review us on iTunes. You can also listen on SoundCloud, TuneIn, and Stitcher. And until next week, have a cloudy day.